What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. All of us, when we were in school or still are in school, took many tests. And one of the purposes of tests is to reveal how much you've learned about a certain subject matter that you're being tested in. And sometimes we pass those tests, sometimes we fail those tests. And, you know, in life, there are often uh, tests that we face. We, we uh, encounter different situations that reveal certain things about us. It reveals what we've learned. It reveals what we're like. It reveals where we're at in that circumstance, in that situation. For example, if someone hears the horrible news that they have cancer and they're a believer in the Lord, it will reveal where they're at in their relationship with God. It will reveal what they've learned about really trusting God in difficult situations like that. It will reveal kind of their faith in the situation. Um, and, you know, there are times and situations where um, we actually reveal or seek to test people to kind of see where they're at in a particular way, what they've learned, uh, if they've changed, um, if they're now able to pass something that they might have failed in in the past. And, you know, you see this a lot in marriages where spouses will test one another and it could be something as simple as, you know, a, a forgetful husband, he's forgotten the anniversary in a, a past year. And so, you know, the wife now decides, I'm going to test to see if he'll remember this year. So I'm not going to plan anything to maybe see if he'll plan something, or I'm not going to mention it to see if he'll actually remember it this year. And, you know, there's certain little tests that we do oftentimes just to kind of see where people are at, to see if they've learned, to see if they've changed. And the reason I share these things about tests is because it's something that we've seen in Joseph as he's now encountered his brothers again after 20-some years of not seeing them. They finally come on the scene, and instead of Joseph saying, hey, it's me, he decides to you know keep himself from them knowing who he is, and he does certain things that ultimately have a bigger purpose. The purpose is, I'm going to test you guys. I want to see if you're the same scoundrels that sold me into slavery 20 years ago. I want to see if you're the same jealous guys with anger issues who were willing to do this to your brother. I want to know if in these last 20 years, anything's really changed in your guys' life. And so he puts different tests before them to see, you know what, are you at a place where you're willing to repent? Are you at a place where you're willing to ultimately reconcile with me? And these tests from Joseph really started when he calls them spies. Oh, no, no, we're not spies. And hey, we're, we're all brothers and we all have the same father. And actually, we got another brother that's back home. And, and so Joseph basically says, all right, prove it. You go home and you bring your brother back here to prove that your story's true, that you guys aren't spies. And to add to the test, 
as they go home with their grain, Joseph puts money that they paid for the grain back into their sacks to see how are they going to respond. Now remember, the last thing he knew about his brothers was they were willing to sell him for money. That that money was so important to them that it was like, you know what, hey, if we can get something for Joseph, great. And so he's like, all right, let's see what you do with this money that I put in your sacks. Let's see how you respond to that. Well, last week we noted how they responded when they get back to their homeland and, and they open up their sacks thinking it's only going to be grain and all of a sudden each sack has all the money that they were supposed to have given to Joseph for the grain. They're, they're filled with fear. They're filled with worry. They're not thinking, jackpot, yes, this is so great. We got all this money. This is what we live for. All of a sudden there's fear inside of them, worry in them, and they tell their dad about it and their dad's not happy about it. And they tell their dad the even more difficult news we got to bring Benjamin back with us. We need Benjamin to come because guess what? Simeon is stuck there in prison. And that's one of the things that Joseph did to encourage their return as he put Simeon in prison. And so, you know, as we looked at last week, Jacob, he tries all he can to get out of this. He puts it off for as long as possible. All the grain has been eaten. They're starving to death now. And finally, he gets to a point after many different things that he does that was not good. He finally comes to the place where he says, fine, you can take Benjamin with you to Egypt, but take the money that was in your sack and take double the money that it would cost to buy new grain. And so tonight we're going to continue where we left off last week in the middle of chapter 43. Jacob has now given his sons permission to take Benjamin to Egypt. And as they get to Egypt, we're going to see several more tests from Joseph. And these tests are going to get bigger and more significant to reveal, have these guys changed? Is there really something different about them than what they were before? And Benjamin's going to be a big part of this. And I want you to remember, it was Joseph who was the favored son, and the second favorite son was Benjamin. Why? Because they both came from the same mother, the mother that Jacob served seven years for, and it was but a day. He loved her deeply. He was stuck with Leah, and then he was stuck with the maids, all the children that came from them. He did not love them the same way that he loved these two boys, Joseph the firstborn, Benjamin the second. And though we know that because of jealousy and because of favoritism, the other boys hated Joseph enough to sell him as a slave. And Joseph has to be wondering for the last 20 years, what's going on with Benjamin? Now that I'm gone and now Benjamin's got to be the one that's dad's favorite, how are they going to treat him? If they sold me as a slave, is he in alive? Has anything happened to him? What's going on with him? I'm sure the first time he saw the 10 of them, he really did want to know, where's Benjamin? Is he even still in good standing? Is he in good health? Have you done to him what you did to me? And so we're going to see Benjamin's return is going to be something that Joseph's going to use to see how do you treat this favored son versus how you um, treated myself. And so let's see what we can learn here from these different tests. But as we look at this, I want you to understand, ultimately, I think what Joseph wants is repentance. We're going to see he keeps delaying. He keeps stopping revealing himself even when there's times that he's overwhelmed with emotion and you can tell, I would love to show you guys who I am, but he chooses not to. And I believe as we look through the context of it, it's ultimately because he wants to see them get to a place where they're ready to repent. And he doesn't want to preempt that. He doesn't want to get in front of that. He wants them to ultimately get to a place where there's true, sincere repentance from them. In 2 Corinthians 
Paul writes, and he's sharing about the response of the Corinthians, because in 1 Corinthians, he gives a pretty strong rebuke to many in the church who are living in sin. And that rebuke, he's like, here's the test. Are you guys going to take this rebuke, and is it going to bring true repentance? Are you going to change? Are you going to turn from these things? Or are you just going to continue the way in which you're living? And notice what he says in 2 Corinthians 7, 9-11. through Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication, and all things you proved yourself to be clear in this matter. Paul could say to these Corinthians who were in sin, who were doing the wrong thing, who were rebukes, hey, you know what? You guys had sorrow. But it wasn't just a kind of sorrow that says, oh, I feel bad that I got caught, or I feel bad that I've been rebuked, or I feel bad about the consequences. He says, no, this is a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. That's the goal. That's what Paul was encouraging them with. You know what? It got you to repentance. That means you responded properly. That was my ultimate heart for you, that you would turn from these sinful things that you were doing. And I believe that is the heart of Joseph here and the test that he's putting towards his brothers. Are you guys truly going to come to a place where you're going to turn from and repent of your sins, because you know what? At this point in time, we haven't seen that in Joseph's brothers. They've been regretful. You know, they've looked at what they did and they said, oh man, you know, it's so bad. We, we, we know this is because of what we did to Joseph and he's calling us spies and he's given us this money and, and they've connected that with their sin, but they're regretful for the consequences. They're regretful for what's happening. They don't like what they're going through, but they haven't really come to the place of repentance, of truly dealing with their sin the right way. And I believe that Joseph is continuing to test them to see if they actually will get to that place. And as we look at what's going on here and look at what the Lord's been doing in the brothers, I want us to think about that because so often we're tested because of our sin. And we need to see that what God's doing in these brothers, He's ultimately wanting to do in us because He wants to bring us to the place where we're willing to come and repent of our sins. And sometimes it takes longer than others, but we know that one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. He wants to bring you to that place where that conviction leads you to repentance. And so let's see how Joseph's brothers respond to the new tests that Joseph gives to them. Picking up where we left off last week, chapter 43, starting in verse 15, says this, So the men took that present and Benjamin, And they took double money in their hand and arose and went down to Egypt. And they stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Take these men to my home and slaughter an animal and make ready, for these men will dine with me at noon. Then the man did as Joseph ordered, and the man brought the men to Joseph's house. Now the men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house and they said, Is it because of the money which was returned in our sack the first time that we were brought in so that we may make a case against us and seize us to take us as slaves with our donkeys? 
When they drew near to the steward of Joseph's house, they talked with him at the door of his house and said, Oh, sir, we indeed came down the first time to buy food, but it happened when we came to the encampment that we opened our sacks and there each man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it back in our hand and we have brought down other money in our hand to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks, but he said, Peace be with you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. So the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water and they washed their feet and he gave their donkeys feed. Then they made the present ready for Joseph's coming at noon for they heard that they would eat bread there. So Joseph's brothers finally do what Joseph asked them to do. They bring Benjamin to Egypt. And when Joseph sees them, and he sees Benjamin, he tells his servant, hey, I want you to go kill an animal. I want you to prepare lunch because I'm going to eat with these men in my home. Now, when Joseph's brothers hear about the fact that they're going not just to get grain and head back home, but they're going to this, you know, man's house to eat grain, to eat food, they're thinking, Instead of, wow, this is a privilege, isn't this going to be nice to have a good meal? They get very suspicious. Oh, why are we going here? This must be because of the money that was put into our sacks. He's going to make all of us slaves. And just as we looked at two weeks ago, because these brothers haven't dealt with their sin properly, there's that guilt that we saw before and that guilt that's still there now, and they're jumping to wrong conclusions. They're thinking the worst of everything because why? They're still guilty. They haven't dealt with this and they think, man, something really bad is going to happen here because of what we've done in the past and the judgment that's going to come upon us. And, and so they try to convince Joseph's servant, hey, it's not our fault. We don't know what happened. We paid the money, and somehow when we get home, the money's back in our sacks. We don't know how that took place. And they're, they're trying to convince this servant that they're innocent because they think surely we're here to be punished. But notice what the servant says, something that I'm sure would have been very... Pleasant to them, but something they wouldn't have expected. He says, peace be with you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. You know what, guys? You don't need to be afraid. I know you're not thieves. I know you didn't steal that money. Actually, that money is a blessing from your God. And I know it personally. Why? Because I'm the one who put the money in your sacks. I put that money there. I know you didn't take it because this was something that was given to you. I'm sure that this response not only kind of took them by surprise, but hopefully starts to help them see God. He recognizes the God of your father. He specifies that, hey, he had his hand in this. He is blessing you. And hopefully they're starting to see the fact that God is moving in this because everything so far, they've been responding negatively and through their guilt and, and not seeing the hand of God. And, and now maybe for the first time, they're starting to recognize, well, wait a second, God's doing something here. God is blessing us. God's moving. And I'm sure they were kind of taken back by what this servant says. And then all of a sudden, he brings out Simeon. And so now they're reunited with their brother who's been in prison for probably almost a year now. Uh, and, you know, they get water to wash their feet. They prepare these things that they brought for Joseph to give him as a present. And now we're going to see the next test that Joseph gives to his brothers as he has lunch with them in verses 26 to 34. It says this, 
And when Joseph came home, they brought him the present which was in their hand into the house and bowed down before him to the earth. Then he asked them about their well-being and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? And they answered, Your servant our father is in good health. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads down and prostrated themselves. Then he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Now his heart yearned for his brother, so that Joseph made haste and sought somewhere to weep. And he went into his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and he restrained himself and said, Serve the bread. So they set him a place by himself, and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat food with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to Egyptians. And they sat before him the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth, and the men looked in astonishment at one another. Then he took servings to them from before him, but Benjamin's serving was five times as much as any of theirs. So they drank and were merry with him. When Joseph comes home, the brothers present their present to him, and Joseph doesn't even really acknowledge that that much. He didn't care so much about that. The first question is, how's your dad? How's he doing? He wants to know how ultimately his dad is still Doing, and they said he's alive and he's well. And notice once again, we see all the brothers. Last time, 10 brothers bowed down before Joseph. Now we have 11 brothers bowing down before Joseph, which is a fulfillment of one of his dreams. In one of his dreams, we have the 11 brothers bowing down. In the other dream, we have the parents and the 11 brothers bowing down. And so how, now we have an actual full fulfillment, not just 10, but 11 brothers bowing to him and then he sees Benjamin. And I want you to try to picture the emotions that must have been in Joseph because here's the one brother who's not guilty of selling him as a slave. Here's the brother that he was probably very close to. You know, he was the favorite, but then, you know, the next probably favorite was Benjamin. They both have the same mom. You know, they're ones who probably got along much better than he did with the other brothers who obviously had issues with him. And so, you know, he didn't get to say goodbye. He's off there, you know, with the older brothers. They sell him into slavery. It's been 20 years since he's seen his brother that he loves, and now he finally sees him. Now he's finally in front of him. I'm sure there's all these emotions. I want to hug you. I want to tell you who I am. I want to have time with you. And those emotions get the best of him. And imagine that. You know, someone that you love deeply, that you've been ripped away from, and you haven't been able to see them for 20 years, and all of a sudden, you're back in their presence. You're back in front of them. The emotions that would go through you, how you would feel, what you'd want to do, and so he's so filled with emotions that he has to leave them. He goes into another room and he just starts to weep because he's finally got to see his brother that he loves so much that he maybe thought, I'll never see again. And there he is, Benjamin. And then he washes his face so they won't know that he's been crying. He tries to get himself back together. And then he comes out and he says, all right, let's have a meal together. Well, we're told as they sit down that Joseph is at his own table, the brothers are at their own table, and the Egyptians that are with Joseph are at their, their own table, and we're given the reason why in verse 32, because the Egyptians could not eat food with the Hebrews 
for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. Notice that even Joseph with his status, he is second in command to Pharaoh. They won't eat with him. Why? He's still Hebrew. He's still not Egyptian. So he still has his own place. The the Egyptians have their own table and then his brothers have their own table. And I think this is something very significant that God's done. The The Egyptians are so racist to anyone who's not Egyptian, they will not even eat with you. Because why? It's an abomination to them. They don't want to have anything to do with you. Now, why that's so significant is because in Canaan, that's not the case. In Canaan, we've seen problems. What? The problems of intermarriage, the problems of, oh, wait a second, if we stay here in Canaan, we're just going to become like the Canaanites, these ungodly people. And we already saw with Dinah, and we saw with others how they were saying, hey, let's intermarry with one another, let's just join with one another, you can worship our gods. Well, you know, there's that danger that we're already seeing with the family of Jacob there in Canaan. But yet God's going to take Jacob's family and he's going to bring them to a very racist place where they want nothing to do with Hebrews. And this is going to be very good for them. Why? Because they're going to be able to stay there and no Egyptian is going to want to intermarry with them. No Egyptian is going to want anything to do with them. And so they're going to be able to grow and thrive as a nation without being intermarried and corrupted and influenced by the godlessness and the idol worship of the Egyptians. And we're going to see that. They're going to be there for 400 years. They go in there at 70 people. They're going to come out millions of people who have not been corrupted by the world that they live in. And this was God's bigger plan of, I'm going to bring them to a place that's so racist that they'll never, unlike Canaan, do this. And then I'll bring them back to Canaan, the promised land, when there's millions of them, and they haven't done this. And it's this great plan that we see here of God, of He knows what He's doing, and even this whole thing of, man, they're enslaved for years, but yet the Lord ultimately brought them to a place where they could grow and thrive uh, without being corrupted by intermarrying and the sin that comes with it. And so we have Joseph. He's sitting alone. We have the brothers. They're at their own table. We have the Egyptians at their own table. And Joseph now does two things that his brothers would have been pretty surprised by. One of them is a test. The other is actually part of another test. But the first thing that Joseph does is he has his brothers seated in order of their birth. So they sit down and you got Reuben all the way to Benjamin, you know, from birth order. And, you know, I mean, they're older now, so you couldn't just look at them and say, okay, you're obviously the oldest, you're obviously the youngest. I mean, there's uh, 11 of them. So they're in astonishment looking, how in the world did he know to seat us exactly in our birth order. And so this is something that's going to be important to a cup that we're going to see a little bit later that Joseph has. Because I believe that Joseph's doing this partly because he wants them to believe that he knows things about them that he couldn't know so that they'll be honest and open with him. But we'll look at that a little more as we get going on in this story. But the next thing that Joseph does, which is really the next test, All the brothers get fed, but notice one gets fed five times more food than everybody else. Benjamin. (laughs) Amen. It's great to be the one with five times more, not so much the one who doesn't get it. But notice why he's doing this. Benjamin is getting the favored treatment. He's getting five times more than all these other brothers. And I'm sure Joseph does this purposely to see, have you guys changed? Because I know when I got favored treatment, when dad made me the coat, yeah, 
I know what happened to me because of that. How are you going to respond when I give Benjamin five times the amount of food that you have? And I'm sure he's just looking and watching. What kind of look are you going to give to Benjamin? What kind of treatment are you going to give to Benjamin? I know those looks. I received them when I got that coat. I know the kind of jealousy that was given to me. Are you guys going to do that to Benjamin? Have you changed? This is the purpose of this test. He wants to see, are you the same as you were 20 years ago? Are you going to deal with Benjamin the way you dealt with me? But it seems that things work well. They respond well. We're told that they drank and they were merry with him. So it wasn't, oh, I can't believe Benjamin gets five times more food than us. These men aren't treating Benjamin the way that they've taught or um, dealt with Joseph in the past. So Joseph watching this, I'm sure he's thinking, all right, they've passed this test. They're doing well, but I have a bigger test for them. I have a final exam to see if they've really changed or not. Are they really loving Benjamin? Are they selfless? Would they lay down their life for him? Or are they just like they were before when it comes down to it? It's going to be all about them and they're willing to sacrifice their brother if it's in that type of situation. And so now... We're going to come to chapter 44 and we're going to see the final exam. We're going to see Joseph give him this one last test to see, have you really changed? Verse 1, And he commanded the steward of his house, saying, Fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest and his grain money. So he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. As soon as the morning dawned, the men were sent away, they and their donkeys. When they had gone out of the city and were not yet far off, Joseph said to his steward, Get up, follow the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks and which with which he indeed practices divination? You have done evil in so doing. So here's the big test. Here's the final exam now that Joseph is giving to his brothers. He tells the servant, hey, fill the men's sacks with their grain, put their money back in their sacks. Well, we've already tried that test before, but we're going to add to it. Here's my special cup, my silver cup. I want you to put it in Benjamin's sack. And when they get far enough away, I want you to go and I want you to catch them and say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Why have you stolen my Lord's cup that he practices divination with? You have done evil in so doing. Now the fact that Joseph told his servant to ask the brothers, hey, why have you taken my Lord's cup in which he practices divination has brought different thoughts from different commentaries of, well, wait a second, is that something that Joseph did? Uh, because that was an Egyptian pagan practice for many people where they would use some special cup and they'd have different things and, you know, kind of voodoo type mindset of, oh, I can discover certain things about p- people in the future and stuff like that. Uh, we know that in Deuteronomy, in the time of Moses, so, you know, about 400 years after this, uh, God says, nation of Israel, this is not something that you're ever allowed to do. You cannot practice divination. So God condemns it in the future. He hasn't condemned it in the present. Um, and so there's different thoughts that some commentators believe this was something that Joseph did. 
uh, that truly that was his cup and he practiced divination with it. Uh, God hadn't condemned it yet. He didn't know. Uh, that's one thought. Uh, there's another thought that I lean more towards, and that's the fact that he's specifically trying this whole thing. All these tests are for a purpose. And that he's saying, I have this cup. I have this power. I can, you know, I have divination powers to know things about you. That's how I knew your birth order. To know things about you. Why? So that you won't lie to me. And I lean more towards that. That Joseph's purpose here is to try to get his brothers to a place where they're going to be open and honest. Because he knows if you're really going to get to a place where I know that you're ready to repent, where this test is going to work, I need you to be open. I need you to be honest. I need you to believe that I can know things about you that perhaps I don't. Uh, and so the test is now given to the servants. And let's see what happens in verse 6. So the servant overtook them and spoke to them these same words. And they said to him, why does my Lord say these words? Far be it from us that your servants would do such a thing. Look, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan the money which we found in the mouth of our sack. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die. And we also will be my Lord's slaves. And he said, Now also let it be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my slave, and you shall be blameless. So the servant catches the brothers. He tells them you know, what Joseph told them to say. And they say, hey, we're innocent. We haven't taken, you know, this cup. We haven't taken this stuff. Why would we do that? I mean, we brought back all the money that was given to us before. I mean, if we were after taking things, we would have never brought the money back. They're trying to give their reason for why they're innocent. And they're super confident that none of them have taken it. So confident because the servant says, whoever's taken this cup, he's going to be the slave. The rest of you can go free. They change it and they say, hey, we're so confident no one's done this. If you find a cup on someone, you can kill them, and the rest of us will be your slave. And so they're quickly opening up their sacks because they're all convinced, we don't have this cup. And notice the servant, once again, he goes birth order, oldest to youngest. Starts with Reuben. No, no cup, goes down, no cup, no cup, no cup. All of a sudden, he gets to Benjamin. Opens up the cup there, and... There it is, in Benjamin's sack. And I think it's interesting to note that even when they say, hey, the person who find, if you find anybody having this cup, you can kill them, and the rest of us will be slaves. He says, ultimately, yeah, as you say, if whoever I find, they'll be my slave, the rest of you can go blameless. He brings it back to what Joseph said. Why? Because this is the main test that Joseph wants to give. When Benjamin's the only one found guilty, and the rest of the brothers can get away, how are they going to respond? It's a different test if they're all guilty and they're all in the same boat, but we won't know how they'd respond. But when only Benjamin has the cup, and only he is the one that Joseph is demanding to be a slave, and the rest of you guys can go free, now we're going to see if these guys have changed. Now we're going to see if they're the same old people who are just looking after themselves, because now they have the opportunity to say, hey, Benjamin... Stinks to be you, my friend. Looks like you're the guilty one. We're off back home. You know, slavery for the rest of your life. Sorry, that's what they would have done 20 years ago. That's what they did with Joseph. They didn't care that Joseph was going into slavery and Joseph's wondering, will you care if Benjamin does? Are you the same guys? 
If you can leave with a sack full of money and grain and go back home and get rid of the brother who's favored, will you do it? And so he set up this test to ultimately put them in a position just like they were 20 years ago. How are you going to respond now? Have you changed at all? Well, let's see how they respond. Verse 11. Then each man speedily let down his sacks to the ground and each opened his sacks. So he searched and began with the oldest, the left, with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes and each man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. They have changed. What they once would have done, they don't do now. Notice what we're told that they do. First, they tear their clothes. Tearing the clothes was an extreme expression of, you know, horror. It's like if someone died, they would tear clothes, and it was just, you know, expression of something so bad has just transpired. They weren't happy at the idea of being rid of Benjamin. Oh, finally, the second favored son is gone and we can finally get rid of him. We can finally be done with this son, brother. No, they were horrified by this reality of what could happen to him, that he would be a slave there in Egypt. And so they tore their clothes and they returned back to the city. The reaction of the brothers showed that for them, this was the worst thing imaginable. The cup was found in the sack of dad's favorite son. But yet, they did not want to see Benjamin sentenced to a life of slavery. And this is a radical change from what they used to think about dad's favored son. You know what? They also didn't really care much about how it would impact dad. But as we're going to see, that's something that they're concerned about as well. How it would impact their father. How it would impact their brother. And they return with Benjamin back to the city. Verse 14. So Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house and he was still there and they fell down before him on the ground and Joseph said to them, what deed is this you have done? Did you not know that such a man as I can certainly practice divination? Then Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he also with whom the cup was found. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. The man in whose hand the cup was found, he shall be my slave. And as for you, go up in peace to your father. So they all travel back with Benjamin to see Joseph. He's still in his house. And Judah is now the one who speaks on behalf of the brothers. And Joseph's like, don't you know? Why'd you do this to me? How dare you guys steal my cup? Judah says, what shall we say, Lord, my Lord? What shall we speak? How shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. They're once again equating all of this to the reality of God has finally judged us. We sold our brother as a slave and now that's what's going to happen to each one of us. We're finally getting what we deserve. God has found out our iniquity and He's punishing us for what we did to our brother 20 years ago. Judah also said, Here we are, my Lord's slave, both we and he also with whom the cup was found. Verse 15. 
Once again, Joseph gives the brothers an opportunity to leave and abandon Benjamin. He says, no, you guys don't all have to be my slaves. Only the one who the cup was found has to be my slaves. The rest of you, you can go. You can go back to your dad. Be blessed. Once again, Joseph, it's great that you said this, Judah. It's great that you're all willing to be my slave together, but I don't need that. Once again, I'm going to give you another test, another opportunity. Are you going to selfishly choose to abandon your brother or are you going to stay? You guys can go. All I need is Benjamin. Don't worry about it. You're, you're free to go. But then Judah is going to give a very powerful response to this final test. The rest of this chapter reveals the response that Judah gives where he shares about how this will impact his father and how this will impact him personally. It's a great response, one in which we see the change that Joseph has been looking for. He's been hoping, I'm sure he's been praying, that there would be true repentance, true change, that these men aren't the men that they used to be. And now look at what Judah says in verses 18 through 34. Then Judah came near him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's hearing, and do not let your anger burn against your servants, for you are even like Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a child of his old age, who is young, his brother is dead, and he is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servant, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, The lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. But you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall see my face no more. So it was when we went up to your servant, my father, that we told him the words of my Lord. And our father said, go back and buy us a little food. But we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother is is with us, then we will go down. For we may not see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons, and the one went out from me, and I said, Surely he is torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. But if you take this one also from me, and calamity befalls him, you shall bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Now therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, it will happen when he sees that the lad is not with us, that he will die. So your servants will bring down the gray hair of your servant our father with sorrow to the grave. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go to my father if the lad is not with me, lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father. So Judah now speaks up. He comes to Joseph. He pulls him aside. He tells him, I, I have some things that I, I want to share with you. Please just, just listen. Don't get angry with me. I just want to share something with you. And then Judah shares two main things. The first thing that Judah shares with Joseph is how Benjamin's slavery is going to impact Jacob. It's going to impact their father. 
And Juto, he details some of the events that we already looked at in the previous chapters and, you know, how Jacob already said that if he loses Benjamin, it's ultimately going to kill him. And so he goes through, hey, when we came here, you said we had to go back and get our brother. And we told that to our dad and he didn't want to let him come. And then he said, well, if I, he does come and something happens to him, that's going to kill me. And he kind of rehashes all this with Joseph and lets Joseph understand if you take Benjamin as a slave, this is ultimately going to kill my dad. But you know what? This is really interesting to see coming from Judah. Because 20 years before this, he could care less what dad thought. He could care less how it impacted dad. They came to their father with a lie. Joseph's been eaten by wild animals and here is his special coat that you made and we dipped it in blood and now make dad think that a wild animal has eaten him. And they didn't care how that impacted their dad. They were happy and fine with lying to their father and, and allowing their father to believe that their, his son was dead. And I think it's also significant to think of the fact that they had reason to be bitter against their dad. I mean, it's an extreme response nonetheless, but their dad showed great favoritism to Joseph. And so living in that home, all these brothers would have reason to be more upset with their dad than they would with their brother. It's not Joseph's fault that he was favored. It was Jacob's fault that he showed favoritism. So if anything, they should have been upset with Jacob. And so you would think if they were holding on to bitterness, if they were holding on to something they weren't willing to let go, it would be more likely towards their dad. But yet now, even though their dad not only favored Jacob, but clearly favored Benjamin as well, their whole life they haven't been favored, but yet they've got to a point now where they're concerned with what this will do to him. They're concerned with how this will impact him and ultimately that it would kill him. And they didn't want to see that. They don't want to have their dad to have to go through this a second time. But the second thing that Judas shares is even more impactful. He shares how Benjamin's slavery will impact him personally. Notice what he says in verse 32. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. Here we see Judah making the personal appeal. Uh, hey, yes, my dad is going to be crushed. It's going to kill him if you keep Benjamin, but it's also going to crush me. It's also going to have a huge impact on me because I personally assured my dad I would bring my brother back. I told him that I would be the responsible to make sure that Benjamin made it safely back home. And if I don't bring Benjamin back, then I'm going to have to bear the blame before my father forever. And because of that, Judah goes on to say in verse 33 and 34, Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go to my father if the lad is not with me? lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father. So not only is Judah wanting desperately to see Benjamin released, hey, look at what it will do to my dad, and look at what it will do to me, because I promised I would bring him back, and I'm so serious about this, that I'm willing to sacrifice myself for Benjamin. Take me. Take me as the slave. Let me live out the rest of my life as your slave, but let the lad go. Let Benjamin go back to his father and let me take his place. Judah was the one who suggested selling Joseph, the favored brother, 20 years before this. And now, 
We've seen a huge change. Now he's willing to sacrifice himself, to offer himself to be taken in Benjamin's place. We see a dramatic change from 20 years earlier is when the brothers didn't care about Joseph. They didn't care about Benjamin. They didn't care about dad. They didn't care about anything would impact any of them. And now we see Judah with this sacrificial love. It's a great example of the change in their lives. I'm willing to give my life for Benjamin's. You know, through this chapter, there's a lot of evidence for the change the change in the heart, the change in the lives of Joseph's brothers. They didn't resent it when Joseph gave Benjamin five times more food than they got. They trusted each other, not accusing each other when they said, hey, one of you has stolen the cup. Who did it? What? What's going on? Oh, we're confident. We're, we're going to stick together. Finally, when they find it in Benjamin's cup, they don't abandon the favored son. They all go with him back to Egypt. They humble themselves for the sake of the favored son. They knew their predicament was the result of their sin against Joseph, and they offered themselves, all of them, as slaves in Egypt, not abandoning Benjamin, the favored son, even when they were given two opportunities to leave him. Oh, no, no, you guys don't have to be slaves, just Benjamin. No, we're going to stay with our brother. They showed how they were so concerned how this would affect their father, which they didn't have before. And then we see Judah willing to be the substitute, willing to give his own life for the sake of Benjamin. So Joseph's brothers have demonstrated, I think, the change that Joseph has been wanting in these tests. I'm throwing out these tests to see, what are you guys like now? Are you the same brothers you used to be, or are you different? And we're seeing that they're different. We're seeing that the Lord has taken them in these last 20 years. We've seen a lot of what God's done in Joseph's life. How God worked in Joseph as a slave, as a prisoner, made him second in command to Pharaoh, gave him the wisdom to save the world from a famine. God's been doing a lot of great things in Joseph's life these last 20 years, but he hasn't been idle in these other brothers' lives as well. He's been working in them to bring them to a place of repentance, to bring them to a place of change where they're not the same rotten men that they once were 20 years before. So the last two chapters, Joseph's brothers have been tested in a very specific way, really because they failed the same test 20 years before. And I think we see an interesting pattern with God, an interesting pattern in Scripture of when we fail tests, just like in school, you fail a test, what happens? You get to take it again. You get to get that same information again. You get to hear that again. Why? Because you got to get to a place where you can finally pass it, and then you get to move on. We see this all throughout Scripture. We see this in the lives of the disciples in John 6, 4-9. through We're told, Now the Passover, or Feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up His eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward Him. He said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this He said to test Him. For He Himself knew what He would do. Philip answered Him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them might have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? This impossible situation arises. How do we feed all these people? Jesus knows exactly what he's going to do, but he tests the disciples. And the test is ultimately, will you put your faith in me? Will you trust me to provide for all these people? And ultimately, they fail the test. 
You know, first it goes to Philip, and he doesn't answer right, and then Andrew, and he doesn't answer right, and, and none of them are giving the proper answer. Hey, with you, Jesus, anything's possible. You can take care of this situation. You can feed all of these people, and so they fail it. A little bit later, they have another huge group of people to feed, and once again, the test goes forth. So many times in the disciples' lives, there's tests of, do you really believe that I can do the impossible? Do you really believe that I can use you to do it? Do you really believe this and that? And they fail, and they fail, and they fail, and guess what? The test comes again. Let's see if you'll pass this time. Okay, nope, you still failed. How about again? And again, and again, until they finally pass. When I was 10... I had to take a test at the end of the school year to see if I was ready for the next grade. The test covered English and math and science and all sorts of different things. And I failed the math portion. So they told my parents, hey, Matthew's got to take this test again at the end of the summer. And if he fails it again, we're going to have to hold him back a grade. And so my parents decided to get me a tutor for the summer. That's exactly the best thing for the summer. That's what every kid wants to have. Because instead of getting to go to the beach and getting to hang out with friends and getting to sleep in, I got to get up at 6.30 in the morning and go to a tutor and spend a bunch of time with the tutor and then do a bunch of homework all summer long so that I could be better in math, which was miserable. But you know what? At the end of that summer, I had to retake the test that I failed before the summer. And this tutor had worked with me, had helped me, had helped me learn the things that I didn't know already. And when I finally took that test again, I aced that test. See, I failed the test, which resulted in taking it again. But yet, because of the tutor's help, I was able to pass it. Each one of us fail tests all the time. Each one of us do things sinful all the time. But the question is, once we fail the test, what can we do to pass it the next time? What can we do to not be in that cycle where it's like, I fail, I fail, I fail, I fail, nothing seems to change, the test comes back, I don't have any different response, I haven't changed, I'm not responding better. What can we do so that the next time we face that same issue, we're different? Our response is different. We're doing it the right way instead of the wrong way. Well, one of the best things we need is a tutor. Someone who knows everything about the thing we failed in, someone who's an expert teacher, someone who can guide us in the right way, someone who can help us from where we were to where we need to be. And that's what we're missing so often. We're trying on our own. Okay, I don't know it and I failed. And now I'm tested again. Well, I haven't done anything to learn. I haven't done anything to be taught. I haven't done anything to be changed. And so now I face the same test and the same result happens. What do we need? We need the Lord. We need the power of the Spirit of God. He is our tutor. He's the one who can help us grow. He's the one who can teach us. He's the one who can change us. During the 20 years that God had been working in and through Joseph, he'd been working through his brothers. The Spirit of God working, helping them change, helping them get to the place from where they were 20 years earlier to where they are now. From Judah who says, let's sell my brother as a slave, to Judah who says, I will sacrifice myself so that my brother can go free. What a drastic change in a life. And that's where God wants to take each one of us. He wants to work in us. He wants to bring that repentance in us. He wants to bring that change in us. But it's not something that we do on our own. It's not something that we can accomplish on our own. We'll keep failing the test. And it's a miserable place to be and it's a miserable cycle to go through. And it's defeating and it's demoralizing. Oh, I did it again. I failed again. I failed again. Because so often we just think, 
in my strength, I'm going to do it better next time. No, we won't. In our strength and our ability, we're going to have the same result, failure. It's only when we finally turn and recognize, Lord, unless you are the one helping me, unless you are the one changing me, unless you are the one leading me, there's not going to be a difference when I'm faced with the same temptation or the same situation or the same whatever it was that I failed in previous. You know, I love the story of the prodigal son. Here's one that chose to do sinful things. And he finally got to the place in his life where he says, you know what, I'm just going to come back to dad. I'm going to come back as a servant. I love the fact that he finally gets to a place of repentance, finally gets to a place where recognizing the consequences of his sin, finally gets to a place where he wants to admit what he's done and repent of what he's done. And he comes to the father expecting just to be made a servant. And there his father is waiting with arms open, grabbing him, hugging him. You're not going to be a servant. You're my son. Put the fine robe on him. Slaughter the calf. Let's make a party. I love my son. He's back. And this is the thing that we need to realize when we fail, when we're in sin, when we come back to the Lord in repentance, He's always there with open arms, always there ready to say, hey, I want to forgive. I want to change you. I want to help you. That's my heart's desire, but I need you to come. I need you to stop depending on yourself. I need you to stop trying to cover up this stuff. I need you to just be open and honest and repent and come to me and I will forgive you and I will change you and I will do what you can't do on your own. And that's what God desires to do in each one of us. So I'm encouraged in the change, especially in Judah, because he's the one that's highlighted in here. But really, I think it's a representation of what God was doing in all these brothers. They go from how horrible they were to a drastic change of being willing to sacrifice themselves for their brother. And the Lord wants to do that in us. We're going to start the next chapter with now Joseph being willing to reveal himself because what I believe he ultimately was waiting for has happened. The change that's clearly there. The brother that wanted to sell him is now willing to be the slave so that Benjamin can go free. He sees Judah clearly has changed. And now we'll see next week him reveal himself and all the wonderful things that go along with that. Any thoughts on what we looked at tonight?